Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I am Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Brendan Hatton talks about biohacking augmented reality. But first up, here's the news. The biggest infrastructure project in the history of the world is to run at a profit. The Turnbull Federal Government has selected South Australia to build a $145 billion nuclear waste dump that will operate for a thousand years. It's currently explicitly illegal to build a nuclear waste dump in South Australia because people got so angry last time the government tried to do this. So there's been a Royal Commission and Citizens' Juries to explore and discuss changing the laws. The Royal Commission's report says that the nuclear waste that's dumped would need 300,000 years to become only as dangerous as freshly mined radioactive uranium. They hope it best for their containment barriers to last 100,000 years, which is only a third of what they need. What's 200,000 years short between friends? So the Commission report recommends that the government run the nuclear waste dump for just 100 years, until it's full and then to monitor it for only the next 1,000 years. Discounted from 300,000 years to 100,000 years to 1,000 years to 100. This still makes it the biggest infrastructure project in the history of the world, as nobody has built something to operate for as long as 1,000 years. It will take deep time engineering. It will also take deep time communications. In the last 70 years, No nation has worked out how to isolate high-level nuclear waste for the length of time it remains dangerous to humans. The report makes clear that the planned technology still falls short. Over the last 20 years, successive Liberal National Australian governments have run with the idea of dumping nuclear waste on Aboriginal land in West Australia, South Australia and the Northern Territory. Here's how that ping-pong between Liberal National and Labor governments, anti-nuclear groups and Aboriginal owners of the land looked. In 1958, Australia's first research nuclear reactor opened in New South Wales. It generates medium and low-level radioactive waste. In 1998, the Howard Liberal National Federal Government announced that Pangaea Company will build a national radioactive waste dump at Woomera in South Australia. Above ground for the most dangerous high-level waste and underground for the less dangerous low-level waste. The exact opposite of international recommendations. In 2003, the federal government decided that Woomera in South Australia will be a low-level radioactive waste dump. The federal government threatened to cut South Australia's science budget if Premier Rann doesn't agree to build the dump. The South Australian government lost a federal court case against the Australian government using compulsory purchase of land at Woomera for the nuclear dump. The South Australian government appealed. In 2004, the federal court ruled that the compulsory purchase is unlawful, and the Australian government decided not to contest the decision. 
The Howard Australian government abandons the national nuclear dump idea and declares that instead every state must build its own separate nuclear waste dump. The very same Premier Rann turns around and agrees to investigate building a nuclear waste dump with the company running the Olympic Dam uranium mine in South Australia. However, he doesn't build a nuclear dump. The Western Australian Parliament passed the Nuclear Waste Storage Prohibition Act 1999. In 2004, the South Australian Parliament finally passed the Nuclear Waste Storage Facility Prohibition Act 2000. Pangaea then changed its name to the Association for Regional and International Underground Storage and has interests from Belgium, Bulgaria, Hungary and Switzerland. Russia has expressed interest in being a dump for world nuclear waste, but hasn't taken any steps. In 2005, the Howard Federal Government's Department of Defence announced a nuclear waste dump for somewhere in the Northern Territory, which will also take research-generated nuclear waste from New South Wales. South Australian Premier Rann campaigned against that as well. His concern apparently being the danger of the transport of radioactive waste across large distances with the higher chances for accidents, as opposed to just being against radioactive waste dumps in general. In 2007, the Howard Liberal National Government names the Aboriginal-owned Muckety Station in the Northern Territory as the future nuclear waste dump. The Aboriginal owners took the government to court and won. The federal government abandoned plans for Muckety Station as a national nuclear waste dump. Fast forward to 2015, former ANSTO chairman Ziggy Switkowski promised that South Australia could earn billions of dollars by permanently storing nuclear waste for the whole world. The Labor South Australian Premier Jay Wetherill announces a royal commission to investigate the idea. Senator Christopher Pine is named the Federal Minister in charge of the radioactive waste dump, industry and science. In 2016, the Royal Commission's report recommends that South Australia could make billions of dollars by taking up to 13% of the world's high-level radioactive waste. Wallabadina Station near Barnaduta is named as the site for the thousand-year dump. Currently, no nation on the Earth permanently stores nuclear waste underground. Finland hopes to start storing its own waste by 2020. Sweden and France have good intentions, but no firm dates for when they will start. The South Australian Premier Jay Wetherill told ABC that there were 390,000 tonnes of high-level nuclear waste in world inventories, all generated from nuclear power stations and all needing to be buried deep underground. He's argued on TV and radio that because Australia sells the nuclear fuel, we have an obligation to take back the waste. Unfortunately, Australia sells 30% of the world's uranium fuel, but the dump will only hold 13% of the waste. Of course, if you run with that argument anyway, then Australia is also responsible for the pollution from all the coal we sell. And the carbon dioxide emissions of our customers should be added to Australia's emissions. We would have an obligation to drastically reduce our emissions in a way that contradicts Australian government policy. The government intend to charge other nations up front for the storage so the money can be spent immediately. The report explains that they will use an investment bank to pay for another thousand years for the profits. No inflation or other possible changes to economics or society across a thousand years are taken into account. 
No company or nation state has ever profited from a thousand years of compound interest. There's no explanation of why the site will be abandoned, but checked for a thousand years and then merely avoided for the next 299,000 years. No effort has been made to explain how we communicate the danger of the dump to our descendants, who at best won't be speaking 21st century English forever. If the ancient Romans had used nuclear power, we'd still be safeguarding their waste, and the money would not have lasted. Given that one of the strongest arguments against nuclear power is the unsolved problem of nuclear waste, it seems to me that not only would the dump be used to justify Australian nuclear power stations being rolled out, but nuclear power being accelerated all over the world. Lobbyists could just point to the Australian dump and proclaim the problem solved. Stick it there! In reality, they'll just have polluted some land for profit. Turning the whole worldwide movement of clean energy production upside down, and perhaps encouraging other parts of Australia to become the world's toilet. The report anticipates several decades of research and development and building before they take their first shipment, at least 30 years. At the current exponential rate of solar and renewable power development, the dump will be worthless in 30 years. Nuclear fusion may work in 30 years' time. It's always just 30 years away. If the world embraces clean energy sources, then the dump will take a massive loss. This would give the Australian government an incentive to keep lobbying for dirty power. The radioactive waste dump is estimated to cost at least $41 billion up front and $145 billion in total. These are not trivial amounts for a nation that feels the need to take money away from the poor and disabled. The report also says that they plan for $550,000 per year annual surveillance costs for a thousand years. This is the cheapest item in the budget. How short-sighted is it to believe that a thousand years of surveillance of toxic waste will be the lowest cost of the project? There's no guarantee that the bank or the nation-state will be around for a thousand years, let alone the 300,000-year lifespan of the entire storage plan. They also seem to have no idea that low probabilities become high probabilities over very long stretches of time. They expect $257 billion profit in return for ruining the land for 300,000 years. They're risking that nothing goes wrong in that vast timescale. The transport risks in the report are only estimated as a risk of collision with another ship, not risks of storms, reefs or shoddy ships that have caused the vast majority of ships to sink. Pirates can't steal the shipment, they say, because the waste is too heavy but it's ignored that they could just steal the whole ship. The economic analysis for nuclear power in South Australia concludes that it's not profitable unless propped up by government. It actually predicts the economy would be worse off if nuclear power stations were built. The government must hope that nobody in the world reads this report and closes down their unprofitable nuclear power stations to save government money, endangering the profits of the dump. The report also concludes that expanding South Australia's uranium mines won't be profitable until the exhaustion of resources in the current mines raises the price of uranium ore. The possibility of using radioactive thorium ore as an alternative nuclear fuel is investigated in the report, and found to be unprofitable because there's no commercial thorium reactors and uranium is very cheap. 
The report concludes that there's no commercial incentive to develop thorium as a nuclear fuel. Chapter 2, page 24. The report says there's no foreseeable market for Australia to enrich its own uranium ore before selling it. The proposed nuclear dump site of Wallabadina Cattle Station in the Flinders Ranges is jointly owned by former Liberal Party President Grant Chapman, and it's right next door to an Aboriginal community. He's eager to sell to the government to build the dump, so there's no need for a Howard-style compulsory purchase of the land. Grant Chapman was chair of the 1995 committee that first decided to put an Australian nuclear waste dump on Aboriginal land. The people of the local Hawker community the station is in are not happy about the dump at all. At a May town meeting, 100 of the 300 local farmers and Aboriginal community joined to protest against the dump. And that brings us to this week. The leader of the federal opposition, Bill Shorten, voted to delay for another two weeks any decision for the Labor Party to have a position for or against the International Radioactive Waste Dump. He's reviewing the situation. Will Australia become the glowing green suppository of nuclear waste? Could anything possibly not go wrong across 100,000 to 300,000 years of running a nuclear waste sewer for the world? Time will tell. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now, augmented reality and biohacking. Brennan Hatton is a virtual reality developer from Silicon Vagabond and Devika Learning. He gave a talk at a biofoundry meeting at the Australian Technology Park about biohacking and augmented reality. Virtuality is basically just like, like the matrix, right? You just like enter a totally different world, sort of cut off from this world. What I, one of my, my personal favourite is our cardboard, where basically these two Google engineers got up on like Google I.O. and they're like, like virtuality is cool and like all this like Oculus stuff and it's like, but you like, you need really powerful computers to run it. You need like expensive hardware. We built this piece of cardboard that goes over a phone and any phone becomes a virtuality headset, which is like awesome. It's amazing. You can literally buy one for $2 and have it shipped to here for free, like from China. Like that's the thing you can do right now in like Australian dollars, which is like, I love that so much. Like, like just scales the industry so much. So virtuality, you sort of take away your, take yourself away from this world. Augmented reality, you add stuff to the world. You stay in the real world and you add digital content to the real world. Like if you were to stick your phone on uh, like the sort of like dash of your car so that you could see the reflection in the, like the dash, that's pretty much augmented reality right there. Just like low, t- low tech, like not doing any tracking, any cool stuff. What, and what's really important with augmented reality is the ability to actually integrate the interface with the real world. So you're not just sort of like, all right, I've got this 3D thing floating in front of me, but it recognizes the space of the world and it can sort of contextualize itself to that world. So that you can sort of like, uh, for instance, with Meta, we did a lot of hand tracking. So we could actually pick up these things and we could hold them in our hands. And you couldn't feel them. Some people claim they could, but you cannot. And it might be there's like some sort of connection there between your brain where you think you're holding it and sort of like tells you that you are. But yeah, it's just, it's just, a light and you're just moving it around and it actually knows where your hand is, what your hand's doing. We could sort of like track your hand being open and closed if you're doing a pinch, if you were touching something. Sort of really like 
basic interactions, but of course, like as well, really advanced interactions. It's sort of like it's somewhere in between, depending on who you're talking to. Like the internet was the platform for sharing knowledge, and virtual reality is the platform for sharing experiences. Unity is what I recommend to start off with. It is basically it's a game engine. Uh, a lot of sort of virtual reality development tools come from game tools because they're sort of creating 3D worlds. And same with like augmented reality is now piggybacking off in virtual reality. But yeah, Unity is pretty much like a 3D modeling tool more than like a, a scripting sort of like tool. Like you just drag things together and you're like, yeah, I want like this thing over here. I want it to be this color. And then like I want like that thing there to have gravity and physics on it. So when, like when I hit it, it drops. So a bunch of sort of a bunch of all different technologies came together to get to this point. One of them is uh, resolutions of the displays and the having sort of high-res small displays and the sort of how accessible, how cheaply they're made thanks to smartphones. And two is the IMU, which is basically that thing in your phone that knows when you shake it and knows like which way you're facing. That thing is pretty much what powers like you to be able to look around and sort of stay in that world and like look at something and then come back and it's still there. Uh, the IMU, inertial measurement unit, and it's made up of like a gyroscope accelerometer and a compass that sort of combines all these things together to know which way you're looking. And, and then the, like the tools to build it, like thanks to like the games industry and thanks to all like, the games industry is actually a, a really sort of like interesting in industry where it's like, it's like an art scene. So there's like all these people who like really passionately want to make games and there is like so little money in it for them, but they don't care, they just want to do it anyway. And Unity is now at a point where it's one of the largest developer communities in the world and it's free, which is like insane. Like, like you can just do this stuff for free. It's like because game developers don't have any money because they're making games and games don't make them much money. So their tools are free. And Unity's actually got this amazing license where it's like it's free if you're making under $100,000 a year on like using Unity. And when you're making more than that, it's $70 a month per person flat so it's not like they take a chunk of your vr app or whatever it's just like that's like they cap it at that which is like i think totally fantastic there are like lots of like uh like unreal is really cool but they um theirs is free until you start making a certain amount of money and then they take a percentage of what you're making and like that's that's not as friendly but uh unreal is also another cool game engine that you can use to build vr ar apps i met up with him after the talk and began by asking him what have you been doing in the biohacker space so I recently sat down with Meow uh, at his house one afternoon and built a protein visualizer where basically you can view proteins in virtual reality, so a 3D sort of sitting in front of you and sort of just play around with them and actually see what they look like up close and personal. Meow is one of the co-founders of the BioFoundry and so you're looking at proteins using what sort of way to visualize them? Basically just a mobile phone with a Google Cardboard, which is a sort of cheap $2 hardware that you can attach to a phone to allow it to do virtual reality and augmented reality. And we, yeah, basically pull the protein data from the protein database online and then build out a 3D protein in front of you using your phone. So you could attach this to any of the proteins in the database? Yeah, essentially. There's just a link at the beginning of the app. You link in the protein that you want and the PDB file, and then it builds that protein for you. So that sounds like it'd be really useful to students and professionals. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's like it's would be great for it's great for learning just for being able to just like actually visualize a protein because they're very three dimensional objects and it's 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 hard to represent these things in two D and to get a good understanding of what they look like. But then just exploring them in more detail, uh, we've sort of been experimenting with visualizing secondary structures and the sort of the, the atoms that make up the protein and the amino acids and it's uh, it's it's a really fun tool to play with. And you developed this in one night of hacking. Yeah, essentially. I think it was over two nights. So like one afternoon, I just went back to Meow's for some beers and like, oh, how about we build a virtual reality app? And him being in like the bio space, me being in the VR space, it turned into a virtual reality bio app. And then I came back a, a night later, a couple of like about a week later, and it's like, oh, let's like just add some more stuff to it. And that's when it essentially became augmented reality, where it was in the real world rather than just in a virtual world. And what tools were you using to build this? I built it all in, in Unity using Vuforia for the augmented reality tracking and Google Cardboard for the virtual reality sort of viewing of it, which is, you can access all of it for free. Like Unity, you can, it's for free as long as you're not making $100,000 from it. And Vuforia, you can get free access as a developer, and then you have to pay once you publish it. And Cardboard is free full stop. And Google Cardboard is turning up in department stores and eBay and everywhere. Yeah, you can even buy it and order it to Australia for $2 for free shipping from like China. You can get it from Kmart and like for like $50 headsets that are made of plastic and sort of a bit more quality or just like, yeah, order online, all these different vari like variations. I've got one that fits in my pocket. It's like, it's cool stuff. And what else are you working on? I'm actually working on uh, teaching virtual reality development to kids. So I have an after-school program called Devica Learning, and we teach virtual reality development, augmented reality development, game development, and a bunch of other tech like web development. And like it's totally beginner level. I also build virtual reality games. So I've got a virtual reality game for event schools and venues, where basically you can have like three people in virtual reality, and then anyone else in the bar or anyone else in the event can attack those people from their phone. They just pull out their phone and they can attack the people in virtual reality. And so like reality versus virtual reality. And you've worked with the Meta company. Yeah, I spent three years working at Meta. I was uh, one of the early employees there when they first went through Y Combinator. And it was, it was great fun. Like I saw the company grow from seven people to about a hundred people. And we actually lived in a, a mansion on top of Silicon Valley that had like a, like it was crazy. There was 40 of us living in this one house, living and working there with like this huge house, big pool. And like, there was like an apple orchard. And actually the world's largest private tank collection was in our backyard. There were 250 war tanks that like, and two miles of miniature train tracks. And the house was like built and designed by the architect of the Golden Gate Bridge. It was like an absurd experience. It was like, you know, like something I've, I've never heard of really anyone going through. It's like the movies do a poor job at representing what actually happened. And like, I like, I, I like, like at one point was living in like the, like this sort of like this, we called the crow's nest. It was like the top of this stairwell with like little open part where you could just like see all from like all across the valley. It was, it's absurd. But it was fun. It sounds like a place you should build in virtual reality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that. <laughs> that's that's. I don't. I don't even know how to respond to that, to be honest. <laughs> and so, Meta have created a augmented reality headset. Yeah. So it's basically uh, you got virtual reality where you go into the virtual world, and augmented reality is different. What Meta does is not virtual reality; it's augmented reality. So it projects essentially like a uh, digital content into the real world which has a transparent display. So the display is actually made of glass. You can still see the real world, but then you can see digital content in the real world too. So you could actually have like your sort of 3D model floating on the table in front of you, and then you could pick it up and move it around. And can you tell me about SimX? 
Yes, SimX was one of the companies sort of mentored at uh, Meta, and they were using Meta to build a training tool for emergency medical technicians. Basically, they'd project a holographic patient onto a table and then allow to do training with a holographic patient. So it's like, oh, like, like, check out what's wrong with it. So it's like, oh, he's got like a laceration on the back of the head and he's got like a bruised knee and sort of a cut here. But oh no, he's like going into an anaphylactic shock and you can actually pull out a physical needle, stick it into this holographic patient and then the patient calms down. And it's like, okay, good. You like, you treated that before you treated the cut. That was like, you did well in the training. And you talked about a virtual lab. So Labstar is a essentially like a, a virtual reality lab where you can go in and just do experiments and they're creating like simulations so that you can actually pull off like real life experiments without any of the hardware or equipment anywhere in the world. It's, it's really exciting stuff and it's like reduce the barrier of entry to just doing experiments, actually having access to like this sort of technology greatly. It's, it's really exciting stuff. Isn't there a danger though that if it's all simulated that it, you can't discover anything that hasn't been written into the virtual simulation? Yeah, if it was all simulated, but they uh, they can do things like actually connect it to physical lab stations and have labs actually run these tests. And uh, they're talking about actually sort of simulating all the like the the foundations of like what these experiments would require to actually be able to predict the accurate results of their undone experiments, essentially. So, if people want to get into AR and VR, where should they start? Well, the best place I would say is go to Unity. Uh, Unity is a, a game engine for building 3D worlds. And there's a, plenty of free tutorials online. It's a free tool. And you can just get in there and actually just sort of start creating your own 3D worlds and just making virtual reality, augmented reality applications. I, I think like uh, virtual reality is still in its early days. And so is augmented reality. But I like comparing this to the invention of television. Virtual reality is sort of like the like the beginning days of television and they haven't even invented color television yet like that's when like light field technology is going to come out and augmented reality is going to be like much more mobile and accessible but it's it's really exciting days and i think that's a good way to think about it well brendan thank you very much yeah thank you that was brendan hatton talking about biohacking and augmented reality and that's all from us this week on diffusion would you like to hear your voice on radio we need more people contributing stories to diffusion Send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The Patreon page is at patreon.com slash Diffusion Radio. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambaka Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station, and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 850 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. 
I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.